Good morning again, and for those who may not have caught it thus far, my name is David. Um, I'm on staff here. It's my pleasure to uh, be before you in this particular place as well, uh, proclaiming from the scriptures. Um, So having been a worship leader for over 15 years now, and having been on staff here for nine years, one might assume that I'm now an expert on what it means to worship. Because uh, it takes 10,000 hours to technically become proficient in a skill or a task, so definitely put that time in by now. So when I started a PhD program this last fall, uh, any potential pride I had in my knowledge of worship was completely washed away by the fire hydrant of knowledge and wisdom I've been drinking from for the last year. Um, so I'm so, so grateful for the Grace Community Church family, whether you knew it or not, uh, supporting me in this endeavor. I'm thankful for the elders who have been 100% uh, behind me in this endeavor. Um, I'm very thankful for my wife, who has been a faithful and absolutely necessary support and encourager through this year. And if you know what we've been through in the last five months, you know that's saying something. And all that to say, I've been living in a constant state of being overwhelmed by theology and worship since I entered that track at Southeastern Seminary. So basically, I'm going to summarize uh, for all of you what this last year has been like in, uh, in about 30 minutes. So buckle up. Okay, I'm, I'm mostly kidding. Uh, but if you have any questions at all about any of the things that I mentioned today uh, to define our biblical response to God, our worship, then please ask me. Um, I'd love to talk about it. And you'll get to talk about a lot of this in your home groups this week for those that are meeting. And there are several questions and things that I purposefully had to cut out of our time together this morning. And it was painful. Uh, but Brad reminds me that a preacher and or teacher is always sharing about 10% of what they actually study in preparation. So you'll get to dig in in home groups. Uh, what I want to do this morning is show how we, as Grace Community Church, how we, how we biblically define worship. Uh, I want to explain how corporate worship is indeed a gathering of the family of God and then clarify that we gather to be sent. Because there are two uses of the word worship that I want to lay out and then we'll pursue one more than the other this morning. Uh, Focusing in on worship as the family gathering. So biblically, there is a call for individual worship And there is a design for corporate worship. And these function distinctly in our lives, but they're inseparable. Individual worship and corporate gathered worship are distinct, but inseparable. So hear this. A Christian who worships at home in private, but does not gather with other believers, this person may not be following Jesus. A Christian who worships on Sunday mornings uh, but does not worship in the quiet of their bedroom or daily with their family or in their place of work, this person may not be following Jesus. And that may be a hard word, but consider it as we define what it is to worship this morning. If you're aware at all of the trends in culture and society, uh, then you've heard some talk about the rise of the nuns Anybody heard that phrase being tossed about? The rise of the nuns. People who have no religious affiliation or preference uh, when they're polled. There's also a rise in uh, the spiritual but not religious category. Those who practice some kind of privatized worship or something or another. 
And privatized worship, that hopefully sounds ridiculous to you. <laughs> because in fact, every believer in Jesus who has professed the gospel to be true and repented of their sin has been sealed into the kingdom of God by the Holy Spirit. They've been made part of the capital C church through the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Privatized worship? <laughs> the church is described as a body and is intended to function together in harmony. So the church and the kingdom is a family, since we're all adopted as sons and daughters and made co-heirs with Christ, our King and Savior. So hopefully uh, that privatized thing does sound a little bit more ridiculous. And the Bible is actually pretty clear on what worship is, on what it looks like. So here are a few key texts that inform uh, what it means to worship. And you'll be talking about some of these more in, in home groups. Uh, so make note of these uh, to read this week or over the next several weeks. Um, these are my, some, some of my favorite passages in scripture we're about to walk through. These are the, the chair texts, if you will, of a theology of worship. And first we have Genesis 1 through 3, this whole, this whole narrative. This narrative answers why we were created, right? So think about it. Think about this narrative. Bring this to your mind as I talk about it. From, from our first breath, which God gave to us in the first place, we were worshiping. We were created for a relationship with the creator to participate with him in creativity. And so we learn from this narrative that we are always worshiping. But if we're not careful, we will exchange worship of the creator for worship of created things or worship of knowledge or worship of ourselves. But God has always intended to walk with us, to show his glory to us and for us to respond to it. So we get an idea of how worship is defined from Genesis 1 through 3. I guess that's kind of a no-brainer if you're going to think about how to define anything. You can find it in Genesis 1 through 3. But next we have Romans 12. So actually, would you turn here or swipe here or tap here quickly? Uh, Romans 12. This chapter uh, describes what we do as a new creation in Christ. So here in the book of the letter to Rome, the book of Romans, Paul lays out the most compelling theological articulation of the gospel until Augustine, maybe. Uh, and at the end of all these chapters of theology, what does Paul do? He breaks out into song. So look, right before 12, at the end of 11, uh, the end of Romans 11 is a Trinitarian doxology from him and through him and to him are all things. And then Romans 12 picks up by saying, therefore, which means everything I've just said leads to this. Therefore, don't be conformed, but be renewed. Be a living sacrifice as your reasonable service to God. But this is also translated what in some of your translations? You can speak a little louder. Spiritual worship. Worship. So the kind of sacrifice we make now in Jesus, it's not a once a year thing. It's not a once a week thing. It's a living, daily posture in response to God's revelation. And there's so much more to go into in Romans 12. Uh, we're gonna jump to John 4, which is another amazing passage. So much to say. And so much that informs what it means to worship. 
In John chapter four, this is the narrative of the encounter between Jesus and a Samaritan woman at the well that describes what kind of worshipers the father seeks. If you remember, those who worship in spirit and in truth. This passage is what reminds us that worship is indeed internal. It's a matter of the heart. So just being present here this morning is not necessarily worship. Singing with us, as we just did, is not necessarily worship unless it is in the power of the Spirit according to the revealed truth of the gospel. I also love Psalm 96 through 99. Uh, These four psalms, they answer for us, what does praise look like? Because these psalms are pure, unadulterated exaltation of God's glory. They are focused completely on the awesomeness of the king of kings, the God who then shares his name with us, Yahweh. So these psalms, they remind us that there's an awe that should characterize our encounters with the truth of the gospel. Because the all-powerful, holy God of the universe has bid us come into his presence. And so we rightly tremble in fear of what he can do and should do because of our rebellion. But he has lifted our heads, helping us see his glory in the person of Jesus. Then in Revelation chapter four and five, uh, this is basically what does praise look like part two? Uh, I've spent some time recently studying this passage in seminars, and, and this may now be one of my top three passages in the Bible. I don't know if you're supposed to do that, but whatever. Uh, so here we find, in Romans, or Revelation 4 and 5, uh, a picture of the throne room in heaven. Uh, and it's, it's really like a constant concert. There's nonstop singing, nonstop instruments, and I would venture to say that it gets a bit loud in there. Not only because John actually describes it with the word loud a lot, but because at one point, you have everything in creation praising God. That's hard to get our minds around. Uh, But Tony was actually describing how on Memorial Day, thousands of bikers from around the country drive into D.C., in order to remember fallen soldiers. And so they'll gather around the National Mall. And then, and I actually saw a video of this on Facebook, then every bike there will rev their engine around the same time. And they call it rolling thunder. The hosts of heaven are praising God with rolling thunder every moment. So the psalmist He's not really being rhetorical when he says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. It's gonna happen. Because here in Revelation 4 and 5, we see that the Lamb of God who was slain, he is worthy of it all. And this passage especially reminds us that he alone is worthy. And then lastly, for this morning, uh, we have Matthew 28. The resurrection and the great commission. And this passage is what we're going to read together. Uh, So if you would, stand with me, as is our custom. And actually, you're going to help me read the second slide. So read aloud together with me when it gets to the bold section. 
From Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me? God, give us illumination by the power of your spirit. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are moldable and sensitive. Help us to cast all of our affections on you because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe see them. So here in Matthew 28, this commission both is worship and is preceded by worship. Now, if you've got this open in your Bibles, you can look at these verses with me. Uh, because worship is the context for God's commands to us. And I love the honesty of this passage, too. When people are trying to attack the validity of the scriptures, I love being reminded of verses like this, like verse 17. Because uh, Matthew 28, it describes the resurrection. So, so if Matthew's going to describe the resurrection, if we're going to describe this thing that we want to convince people of, if you're going to lie about it, you know, you'd want to paint the most clear, compelling picture possible, right? If you want to convince people, you dress it up so that nobody's going to have any questions. But here, Matthew's just honest. Some doubted. Now, why else would Matthew include such a potentially troubling thought unless it's just true? Jesus was raised from the dead. Some people will doubt this. Their doubt does not make it any less true. But I digress. Okay, so here we find the disciples see Jesus and they worship him. So the word in the Greek here is proskuneo, which literally and usually means uh, to lay prostrate to, to bow down. The word that's most often translated worship in the English is this word proskuneo. So we've actually lost a lot of this in the good old American church with our comfy chairs and tight rows and propriety. Unless you're a charismatic or Pentecostal, then this kind of makes sense. But in the first century and beyond, uh, to worship God in corporate gatherings included more than just your voice raised and your thoughts ordered and, and directed. You put your whole body in submission to the king. They see him here in this passage and they worship him. They see the resurrected Jesus and they fall on their faces. And then he gives them a way to continue their worship by making disciples. Because making disciples is worship. And what we do that personally, individually, corporately, because making disciples is, is teaching people how to respond to the incredible news of what God has done in Jesus. Uh, this is what God has commissioned us to do if we follow Jesus. We're teaching people how to respond. 
to this news. Hopefully as we continue to respond to it every day. So I've used this word worship a lot so far. Uh, So here's a a theological definition of biblical worship that I was actually tasked with compiling this last semester. And I relied really heavily on biblical language, as you might guess, uh, and the work of of some incredible theologians uh, to craft this. So what what I landed on was that true worship is the heartfelt, spirit-empowered response of God's covenant people to the revelation of God's glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ, initiated by God's invitation and performed according to his will in the context of the gospel's promises. Again, you'll have time to chew on this in home groups. Uh, This definition, this is on my mind when I do my job as creative arts director. If you're ever curious of what is governing the choices that we make in our gatherings together, this is the guideline for me. This shapes and and directs my thoughts when we do what we do on Sunday mornings. And this is obviously a loaded definition. There's a lot going on here, and I don't have much time to unpack it this morning, Uh, but please notice what is not here. Okay, I do not say that worship is really good music or that worship is led by a worship leader or a pastor. Worshiping God is so much bigger than that. It's our response to God's revelation. And we see this pattern of revelation and response throughout the scriptures. God reveals himself. The people respond. Here in Matthew 28, in this passage, the disciples see the revealed, resurrected Jesus, and they respond by falling on their faces. But if you recall our title for this morning, we're going to focus on the aspect of corporate worship or the gathering of believers. Uh, Because it's in keeping with our theme for our study of the church, Uh, so let's consider how corporate worship is like a family gathering. I... uh, I missed the Stevenson family reunion last month. That's my mom's dad's side of the family. Uh, but there was, there was over 100 folks who were all related via our great-grandparents, all got together in a small church's fellowship hall in Willow Spring. Hopefully you've been to a family reunion at some point in your life, at least of one sort. And, and when you have family reunions, whether multiple branches all coming together in a big thing like that, a potluck with tons of food left over, or whether it's just you know, your Thanksgiving gathering where all the immediate family in the area, they, they gather together. That's a kind of family reunion. There are several things that are guaranteed to happen at any family reunion. Now, you're already thinking of them. You know, same thing you've seen every time. But, and I'm not talking about like the cheek pinching and that kind of stuff. What I'm talking about is when your whole family gets together, something awkward is going to be said or done. You can count on it. I mean, and there are various degrees of awkwardness, but it's inevitable, right? When your whole family gets together, someone is going to take a nap. I mean, whether it's your toddlers or your grandpa, like somebody naps at some point. You may not notice it, but there's always somebody napping. When your whole family gets together, the time either passes way too quickly or not fast enough, right? There's no in between. And now... All of these could actually describe the church. <laughs> if you think about it, the, uh, the something awkward, the napping, the too quickly or not quickly enough. 
Uh, but actually, there, there are four things that definitely describe uh, the church that's, that's part of a family gathering. So let's look at these. Um, when your family gets together, uh, you usually spend time, uh, well, first you have to gather. I mean, that's literally the first thing you're going to do. You're going to gather intentionally at a given place, at a given time. Everybody knows what's happening. You come together. You gather together. And then you usually spend time, you know, talking, remembering life, catching up, celebrating the good things, grieving the losses. Then you come to the table, right, for fellowship and nourishment. And finally, you're sent back out to be a Calvert or a Stevenson or a Tally or whatever in the wider world. You're, you're sent out. So gathering, remembering, the table, and sending. Now these are four elements of every corporate worship gathering across denominations and across traditions. We, all, we, we, gather these, we get these biblically, and then I'm going to unpack them in our context. So first we have the gathering. The fact that we gather together biblically, uh, this is pointed to in, in the invocation, the prayer of welcome, the intentional gathering at a time and a place that's been agreed upon for the express purpose of worshiping God together. Throughout the New Testament, they appointed the first day of the week, remember, to gather together. Why would they pick the first day? Because that's when Jesus was raised, to commemorate that. So there's this gathering that's explicit on purpose and important. So in our context, like we do the gathering stuff uh, when we do announcements together, when we greet one another as we get our coffee. Uh, these are all ways that we intentionally gather and, and begin to shift our focus away from ourselves and onto God and others when we gather. Then there's the remembering. Biblically, this is accomplished through the word of God the sure and unfailing testimony of God's work and of God's character. So this remembering through God's word, biblically, is done through preaching and singing and praying. And so in our context, that's how we do this, by singing, by praying, by preaching, and celebrating the work of God for the people of God as recorded in the word of God. We remember what he's done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. Then we have the table. And biblically, this is most clear in the Lord's Supper. But before that supper, God instituted the Passover meal as a signpost to both remind the people of what he had done and his faithfulness toward them, but also to point them toward the lamb who would be slain as the final sacrifice, the final amount of blood that would need to be shed to atone for sin. So when Jesus, when he led the supper in the upper room before his death, uh, he showed how the fullness of the gospel is mysteriously wrapped up in the practice of eating broken bread and drinking wine. I mean, it would take a whole sermon series to unpack the ways that the Lord's Supper is alluded to all throughout Scripture. And the amount of meaning that's in, it's intended to convey when we partake together, coming to the Lord's table at his invitation for fellowship and nourishment. In our context, uh, some of you may have noticed, there's not a table up here right now. It's a once a month supper for us, the first week of every month. But hear me, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're involved in a church that does not celebrate the Lord's Supper and corporate worship, you need to find a church that takes the Bible more seriously. Because in the same way the Bible knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian, the Bible knows nothing 
of a Christian who does not commune with God and with the body of Christ at the table. This is another shout out to the privatized religion folks, the spiritual but not religious folks, the nuns who have no preference. Maybe they'll go to church when they feel like it. Maybe they just feel like it's enough to have uh, the Holy Spirit and their Bible and they're good. That means they're not reading the Bible right (laughs) because the Bible points us to one another. We're given spiritual gifts to serve one another. We're given the Lord's Supper to celebrate fellowship with one another and nourishment from the Lord. So there's all these ways that point to how important it is to come to the table. So in our context, there's another way we kind of build on this. Our weekly fellowship in home groups usually takes place around a table. (laughs) Even if you don't have a full meal, somebody's bringing a dessert, right? There is fellowship that happens at a table. That's because God made us this way. Meals are powerful times for building relationships, for being vulnerable. I don't know if they're going to like this thing that I cooked, but I'm going to put it out there. For showing hospitality and modeling the gospel in your homes. For other people to see, for your kids to see. And then lastly, we have the sending. Now, biblically, this is a benediction. It's, it's a missional blessing that accompanies the people as they go forth. Paul writes benedictions in his letters. Aaron pronounced a benediction over the people of God that's been repeated innumerable times since he wrote it. So in our context, we have elders and deacons pronounce a benediction. And some of us may feel like that's just the dismissal prayer. That is not what it is. What's happening is it may seem like a simple moment at times, but this short period of time, these men are praying for each and all of us, offering a blessing for us as we go. And that's important. Because in an interesting turn, we are sent in order to gather the family. Remember our text from Matthew. The commission that Jesus gives immediately after they worship him, he sends them out to the, to the ends of the earth so that wherever they are, they might gather the family of God and begin that cycle there as well, where there's gathering and then they scatter and they gather and they scatter. We gather again each week to do the things that can only happen when we gather, and then we're sent yet again. This cycle's been happening every week that you've been attending church, whether you were aware of it or not. You're worshiping through gathering, remembering, communing, and then living your regular, ordinary life. The church gathers and scatters. Now, it may seem a little late in the game to ask this question rhetorically, but why do we worship? So maybe you've had this experience where you're halfway through the year and you've got all your routines down. Uh, You know what you're doing week to week, day to day. Life's moving right along and you get up to go to church again because it's Sunday and that's what you do and something brings you pause. You sit in your car and you sit in the driveway and you think, why am I doing this? In part, this is answered by another question. Who do we worship? If you're in a place where you've been wondering, why do we worship? Why is this such a big deal? Why have I been committed to this gathering thing? Why am I hearing from this book again? Consider who you worship. 
reading Psalm 96 through 99, or reading Revelation 5, or even reading about Isaiah's call in Isaiah chapter 6, the God who created the heavens and the earth and the atom and its subatomic particles and all the colors of the sunset and the human eye that can behold it and ice cream and gravity and starlight and time itself, he loves you. The holy, righteous, just, and perfect God who knows every wicked thing that you've ever thought about doing and who knows exactly how broken and sad and lonely and lost you are. He loves you. The king who is above all kings left his throne in order to bring you home. And though all things are already his, he died a thief's death in your place so that you could be called a son or a daughter. He loves you. When you're focused on him, the why has its proper context. That's why the Great Commission begins with worship. They were focused on Jesus. And in that context, he sends them out to make more worshipers. And that's actually not as difficult as, you, as we make it out to be sometimes. Making more worshipers. Because uh, you're always on. We're always worshiping. You can't turn that off. You will always be pouring out your affections toward something or someone. As Calvin puts it, your heart is an idol factory. And unless you're focusing on him, you will create something else to love and put it in the place that God deserves to be. We don't have to make people worshipers. We have to help them aim it correctly. And many of you have heard this before. Uh, even a good thing that becomes a God thing is a bad thing. Even a good thing that becomes a God thing is a bad thing. And people are already worshiping. It's our commission, our task, as a gathered and scattered family to remind people to look to him. When we see Jesus, we can't help but worship in response. So if you're wondering why we worship, look on who we worship. Look at Jesus. When we gather on Sunday mornings, it's, it's helpful to remember that Grace Community Church exists to exalt, establish, engage. And as, as Pastor Brad reminded me this week, these are less sequential and more simultaneous, especially when we gather together to worship. We are simultaneously exalting, establishing, and engaging through our weekly liturgy. And liturgy, before you get freaked out, simply means the work of the people. The liturgy that we practice every week here is less about what I do and even what Brad does, but more about how all of us are equipped for ministry. So we have several core values uh, that reflects what it means for us to worship in this family gathering. You can find these on our website. Uh, you can discuss them next week in Grace Connection, uh, but here's a couple of them. Participatory worship. This is a core value for who we are. That means meaningful worship is not a performance by a few, but a heartfelt response by all to the magnificence of God. Our worship gatherings are Christ-centered, God-honoring, culturally relevant, creative, innovative, and grounded in Christian heritage, but not blindly tied to church tradition. But when we sing on Sunday morning, I'm not listening for myself. I pop one of these suckers out. It's an in-ear monitor. 
so that I can hear everyone else participate in worship. Every member, a minister. That's everybody sitting in here, a minister. God works through people and gives every believer talents and gifts vital to accomplishing his plan. So we help each, each member discover, cultivate, and employ those gifts so that the church can better meet people's needs and individuals can reach their full potential in Christ. It's a core value of what, what it means to worship at Grace Community Church. And then lastly, the continuing challenge for me is creativity, excellence, and innovation. Because meeting needs is, is way more important than maintaining a program. So while our message is timeless, our methods adapt to those we're here to serve. In all that we do, we give God our best. These are core values of what it means for us to worship when we gather. And we do all of this. We gather for worship because he is worthy. God has made us all members of one another, knitting together the body of Christ with Jesus as our head. So don't neglect the gathering together. And don't neglect the missional sending that's going to take place in just a few minutes. Because we gather to be sent. At the end of every month, we worship through giving as well. And we give specifically to benevolence, which is fun to care for those in our congregation, in our community, who are in difficult places financially. So as I close in prayer, would you please consider worshiping in this way as we give? So would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful that you have given us the privilege of coming into your presence. You've made a way for us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. His death and resurrection, uh, it tore the veil that separated us from you. It built a bridge over the space that has separated us from you. It healed the brokenness. So as we respond to these truths, God, be glorified. I pray for uh, these gifts as we give them, that you would be glorified in the blessing of uh, the people who have need. We thank you that you have given so abundantly to so many of us that we have the great privilege of giving. So use these things to bless your people for your glory and for their good. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. Amen.